Hello, folks. Today's interview is very special. I got to interview Robert Armour. Robert is the first person I've interviewed that has dedicated their entire life to the U.S. Navy. I've had other people I've interviewed that spent a few years in the military and that went on to other things, but uh, this this is pretty unique, and uh, I'm very thankful for this interview because Robert was there for many major transitions in the U.S. Navy and U.S. military. And we get to talk about this during the interview. He was there when the Navy went from an all-male Navy to mixed gender. He was there when the Navy went from peacetime to post-9-11 when we went to active wartime. And he talks about that transition as well. Uh, I'll be honest, folks. We are only scratching the surface of the iceberg when it comes to his stories. He's a captivating storyteller, and I'm sure you'll appreciate his stories as much as I appreciated getting to hear them. My hope is that we'll get to have him back for many more interviews in the future because I truly feel that this is just the beginning of talking about his career. I have to apologize to Robert and to everybody. I Very early on in the interview, I kind of asked Robert to sum up his 30-plus year career in a few sentences or paragraphs. Not a fair question at all. Uh, Robert tries to humor me, but the reality is you can't sum up a career like he has had in such a short amount of time. I hope you'll be forgiving. I'm still learning how to be a good interviewer. But regardless, having somebody like Robert talk to me is a privilege. And I'm sure you folks will appreciate that. Without further ado, Robert Armour. Welcome, folks, to another episode of Nautical Knowledge and Nonsense. I'm here with Robert Armour, and yeah, this will be a really interesting interview because oh, yeah. I met Robert at, at the tap room where I served drinks, and all I know about you, sir, is that you were in the Navy. Is that correct? Right. That is correct, yeah. Nailed it. So you're in the Navy. You are very recently, re- recently retired because that's where I met you at your retirement party. Yeah, last month. Yeah, and, uh, and boy, I was hearing, like, I only got a little little hints of the stories you were telling but they were all really captivating stories and and you definitely had the crowd captivated that was around you so i'm like that's the guy i got to interview right and i haven't had an active navy well now you're now you're retired so technically i guess we'll throw you in the retired list but okay but i want to know all about your career sir if you don't mind i don't so, mind at all i'm ready yeah so this is nautical knowledge and nonsense obviously we talk a lot about boats but uh but we talk about a lot of other stuff too, so okay. I'd love to love to hear it all. What? Um, where should we begin? Should we begin with your first time on a boat ever? Or should we begin with the Navy? Let's start with the first time. Have you ever been? First time you were ever on a boat? I think uh, yeah. First time I was on a boat was with my dad, who was previous military as well. Uh, and one of the cool things about being in you know in the military is you have access to boats, uh, RV equipment you know, kind of any kind of camping gear. So he would rent boats from time to time. We'd go out down on the Delta in Louisiana, down Mississippi and do trout fishing or go crawfishing or something like that. So I've, I've been around the water my whole life. I've never, I've never lived inland. I've always lived by the water in some, in some form. So, um, yeah, I've been exposed to boats, but not to the degree that, man, we go on the boat every weekend. It was very, spurious maybe we do it maybe once or twice a summer and then that would be it for a while and then maybe a couple of years later we'll do it again for a couple of times but not to a, a great extent no 
So your dad was ex-Navy? He was ex-Navy as an ADJ, which is a mech. Uh, You had ADRs and ADJs as far as the rating is concerned. And then the the J was, you know, for jet engines. And then he made the transition from the Navy to the Coast Guard. And then he worked on helos. Uh, So he was stationed down in New Orleans, which is where I pretty much was exposed the first time to, to boating. All right. And then uh, when, when did you join the Navy? 1989. Okay. Awesome. What, what, what has your career been like? like can, wow. you, can you sum it up in a few paragraphs? I'll try. <laughs> I don't know if a few paragraphs will do it justice. I mean, it's, uh, it for me, it was a blink of an eye when I look back. Obviously, almost anything that people tell you, like when they tell, when you go look back on somebody's career or life, they go, man, it was, seems like it was only yesterday that this. But it was 1989. Uh I was accepted to four colleges. I had paperwork in the mail. Mom and dad couldn't afford college. So there were only really two options left. Hmm. The military, or, you know, or slug it out, try to go find a job somewhere. So um, I had been talking to the, well, I had been talking to the Navy recruiter, but the Marine recruiter was really, I had to walk by his office to get to the Navy guy. And every time I stepped through there, he would come out. Hey, what's going on? I'm like, I'm on my way to see the Navy recruiter. Thanks anyway. I'm not here to catch bullets. I'm here. I want to go work on planes. And that's what I did. So I talked to the Navy recruiter. Uh, we set it up that uh, I would go to school in boot camp and I would follow on school uh, for to be an aviation electronics technician. And that was 89. And I went to A school in 1990 in Millington, Tennessee. That was a pretty long course, about six to eight months of just, you know, electronics and electronics theory, um, troubleshooting analysis. But unfortunately, my first tour of duty was not on a ship. Mm. Of all places, it was in San Diego. So you figure, you know, this young man had just joined the Navy, ready to see the world, got stationed to San Diego for his, my first tour. So that's kind of how it all started. Uh, after that, I kind of finagle my way, you know into a squadron that was deployed on a carrier. Uh, so my first deployment, 1993, deployed again in 95, deployed again in 96. So I've been on a variety of aircraft carriers, uh, USS Abraham Lincoln, uh, USS Kitty Hawk, which it, incidentally is on Facebook. They were towing it and people were sharing stories about the Kitty Hawk. And the things that I'll remember about the Kitty Hawk are two things. One, the f- Aft mess decks were always stocked with delicious food, potato bar, taco bar, salad bar. And that aircraft carrier had an escalator. Oh, wow. Most of your nuclear class aircraft carriers, well, all of them basically, don't have an escalator. But the Kitty Hawk had one because one of the ready rooms for the pilots was actually down below. And for the pilots to get up to the flight deck in a hurry, they would get on this escalator and it would take them up to the, the deck right below the flight deck and they could get on there. So... Obviously, something that people aren't used to when you come from a nuclear aircraft carrier to a conventional, which is what a Kitty Hawk was. It, mm. you know, it burned gas to, to go. That escalator for people that are carrying, you know, humping boxes and carrying lots of heavy stuff, escalators where it's at. Um, so after 95, uh, 95 to 96 deployment, I got to orders to be an instructor. I did that for a number of years. Uh, and then from the year 2001, uh, I mean, September 11th happened in 2001. I was actually between between uh, organizations, between duty stations, and I got the call on the phone. Uh, my squadron wanted me to check in, um, and I checked in. And then I've basically been on sea duty, which we call it, you know, in in the Navy is you're, you're deployable at all times. I've been on sea duty, 
or was on sea duty 2001 up till this year. Deployed on the USS John C. Stennis, uh, Carl Vincent, USS Ronald Reagan. Um, I've had a pretty uh, decent tour. I will call it that. You know, okay. I, I can't sum it up in a couple of paragraphs. I know. Like, <laughs> no, no. You know, like it's it's amazing. Like uh, I, I look back and I and I've seen a lot and I've done a lot. And um, being at sea is one of those things that I'm you know I'm gonna miss. Yeah, I won't miss the, you know the circumstances that get me there or the job that that I have during the time on on the ship. But I've had many a night or many a, a, an instance where I've actually you know I've had time to stop and just look out over the horizon. And give myself that that utter feeling that when you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, that you really are not insignificant, but you feel pretty small. You know, when you look around and if you were to jump off the ship or the ship was to sink, there's nobody's going to find you. Yeah. You're miles away. But I've seen incredible things, you know, purple water. I've seen flying fish, dolphins, and you name it. Just the incredible <laughs> sights that are out there, you know, uh, are pretty amazing. So... I'll sum it up with one word, lucky. <laughs> so what, now what exactly, forgive, forgive a complete layman here, uh, but what exact, uh, as, as it pertains to Navy stuff, what, what exactly was your job on the, the ships? You say you're part of a squadron. So are you, are, were you working on like the maintenance on the air, aircraft? Were you flying the aircraft? Were you like, what was, so you're mate, you were, you were doing electronic maintenance. Yes. Okay. Now, obviously, we don't want to disclose any U.S. Navy secrets, and we don't want to put anybody's life in jeopardy in, in the future. So, yeah. but um, which which planes are we working on? So, I've worked on a number of aircraft. Okay. So, the, the, my first deployment, uh, ninety three. I was. We talk about ranks in the military. Mm -hmm. I was an E four, retired as an E nine, but I was an E four. And my job on that deployment is to fix the airplanes. Okay. So, if the airplane comes back and there's something wrong with the you know, the electrical system, if you will, the avionics, not the, not so much the generators, any power, but anything wrong with the radios, the navigation, the radar. That was my job to fix. Uh, and I did that on the flight deck, down on the hangar bay, you mean, wherever the plane was broken, that's, that's where I worked. So. Right. Yeah, it's my next question. <laughs> exhilarating. I mean, I, I've been exposed, you know, I mean, the flight deck used to be one of the, it was the most dangerous place, you know, ranked in the world to work you know right right there with underwater welding and you know so there's some other professions out there but at the time it had ranked very high because of the hazards because people if you're not watching what you're doing you're not paying attention to what's going on around you one moment of misjudgment it it could be all over for you i mean i've known guys that have been blown overboard uh i've had friends of mine that have witnessed people you know getting hit by propellers uh, you know, I, the videos they make you watch, you know, they really to, to really drive it home, they make you watch videos, you know, where there's aircraft fires. They make you watch videos where there's people having accidents, they, you know, and that's meant for you to go, okay, this is serious up here. I really need to have my wits about me. Uh, and even more so dangerous at nighttime because, you know, the ship is not allowed to give away its position. And how it does that is it doesn't use white lights. It uses amber yellow lights because you don't want that light to travel very far so they keep the lighting very subdued so imagine walking around up there trying to navigate the flight deck as it is right but also not trip over chains and equipment you know because the flight deck's littered with things so as a young person being exposed to that i ate it up that stuff is amazing you know it's exhilarating you're up there and you know that 
uh, it's a high stress environment, but you know, as you go through boot camp and you go through some of the training that the Navy puts you through or the military in general, yeah. it's meant for you to handle some of that stress, but meant for you to cope and handle it in such a way that it's going to be a positive outcome vice. You don't crack or, you know, there's nothing that's going to cause you to, to lose your mind or, or, or I don't really have a good word other than, you know, make a misstep. Oh, yeah. So as a young man, I did that. And I did that on, you know, E2C Hawkeyes, uh, which is a prop driven uh, airborne early warning platform. And I did that for a number of years. Uh, and I went to go teach it, like I said. And then I came back to it. But the time I came back to my first deployment, you know, after instructing, being a teacher in 2002, I was in E6 and I had moved up the ranks. So my job per se wasn't to fix them anymore. I was managing the people that were fixing them. So as, you know, trouble calls come in, I'm, you know, I'm sending people to go work on planes. Or I'm sending, I'm, I'm kind of managing the workload. And then after I made E7 chief, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not going to fix airplanes anymore. That's basically because I'm in charge now. I'm kind of, I'm kind of managing and coordinating maintenance at that point. So, you know, my year, my early years, 93, 90 to 93 to 98, pretty much was me working on planes as, as a technician. In the Navy rank system, it's uh, seniority based? Yeah. It's amount of time in? Okay. Did, um, well, one thing, just to, to go back to the flight deck, because you were saying at night, it, it gets, it's harder to see the light, there's less lighting, which all makes sense. But I think in addition to that, I'm pretty sure most people know this, but you can't hear anything on a flight deck when the jets are like screaming, right? I mean, like how, how does, how does that work? Because like everybody's wearing hearing protection. Yeah. It's like your, your hearing's reduced, your visibility's reduced. If conditions are slit, like there's so many things like, like you're in the rain, you're in the wind, you're this, this, the snow sometimes. And then on top of that, you have a moving deck, even though it's a big ship, they still move. I know they do. Oh yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I can see that being a little dangerous. <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, you get, you know, it's amazing what you can get used to. Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, the first week or two that you're actually on the flight deck, you really are nervous. You're not really, and, and most of the time they don't trust you to go do anything other than watch. Yeah. We just want to, you're going to watch from over here in a safe area for a couple of days. And then we're going to bring you down there and you're going to be with somebody who's more experienced than you. And you don't, you don't do anything. You just follow what they're doing. So if they, if they duck and move this way, you duck and move this way. If they stop and stand still, you stop and stand still. So you're not left to your own devices. It's not like, all right, welcome. And this is where you sleep and this is where you eat and go, you know, go be fruitful and multiply. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, there's people there helping you out. And the same thing will happen on nighttime. So the first time somebody goes from a, you know, a day shift and they put them on the night shift, it's going to be the same thing. Like, Hey, watch out for so-and-so take them up there, show them the ropes. Because once you're up there and you know flight apps are going, you can start, it's like jumping rope. Yeah. Okay, I kind of know the tempo. I know what's going on. I know that there's going to be another plane coming up here. I know there's going to be probably one behind me. So I probably should watch what's going on. And you start getting into that rhythm. And yeah. that way it's not as bad. You know, one of the adages we used to tell people all the time is once you're comfortable up there, it's probably time to come down. Wow. We don't want you comfortable up there. You need to be a little uneasy. You need yeah. to be mindful that... Once you're comfortable, you might be a problem. You yeah. might be the person that's, oh, I got this is old hat for me. I've done this before. And you and you trip over a tie-down chain and, and bump into somebody and they get pushed. And, you know, I, I've had buddies that have dropped toolboxes over the side of the ship because they couldn't see. It's wow. dark. And they and they went to go think there was a step. There was no step in a toolbox, you know, full of thousands of dollars. But the tools is now in the, you know, the, the Pacific Ocean or it's in the Persian Gulf or it's wherever we are. Uh, so, yeah, it's... Uh, 
it's a threatening, ominous environment, but you can get used to it as long as you don't get comfortable. That's so, what that's when it becomes dangerous. Yeah. Sounds like docking a boat. It's very <laughs> Right. <laughs> like I never I never truly ever was like, oh, this is just easy. It's like, no, you're always it's always something. So what is your what where's your favorite place that you what are some of the favorite? I'm assuming you might have gone to multiple ports multiple times, but what, what are like some of the favorite ports of call that wow. uh, you went to? Okay, um, I truly uh, like Perth, Australia, uh, and its smaller township of Fremantle, which is just south of Perth. Uh, the ship uh, at the time That's the West Coast Australia, yes, southern south southern West Coast. So the ship at the time, the carrier, uh, can't really pull into. It'll moor out and you'll take Liberty launches, you know, smaller boats will take you in. So when we go in, when you pull into Perth, you're actually pulling into right off of Fremantle and you're taking the boats, the smaller boats from the carrier to Fremantle, getting off. Then you can take the train. Fremantle is a nice little town. It kind of reminds me a lot of of Coopville Hmm. as far as its seaside. It's got lots of cafes and bistros, lots of little uh, micro brews. It's got some yachts, you know, and some docks down there. It's got a prison. It's an old prison. You can take a tour of it. It's historical. Uh, and Perth reminds me more of uh, San Diego. Hmm. It's a bustling metropolitan area. Uh, good nightlife. Uh, good shopping. And they all, you know, they speak English down there. So yeah, you know, they we can understand what they're saying. Whereas <laughs> you know, when you're in in uh, Dubai uh, in the United Arab Emirates, I pulled in there the first time in 1993 on that first deployment, and uh, the ship can be pierside. It was at a pier facility, and there was nothing on the pier except for uh, a mobile home unit, which was an AT&T call center. So sailors could get off the ship, and you go down, and it was a free phone call, and you call mom and dad or call your wife or your husband or whoever, and you can make a phone call. Mm-hmm. And then van would take you to outside the port authority where you would pick up a bus, and it would take you into town. And it was – Dubai was nothing. It had There was nothing there. It was desert, you know. Uh, yeah, you can go do some gold shopping if you wanted to buy gold at market price or do some haggling and a lot of bartering going on. But the last time I was there, I think in 2014, the 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 folks that that own that that city, you know, the the, the people that manage it, mm-hmm. you know, were smart. They built an infrastructure. They put huge uh, shopping malls in there. They did a they put a metro rail in there, and they touristed it up real good. You've been to Palm Jumeirah, you know, you've seen some probably the videos, but they were building out into the water of the Palm Islands. Yeah, impressive. So, um, I started liking going there because before it was like it's 120 degrees here, and there's nothing to do. So why are we here? You know, it's okay. I guess we're here to just take a respite, which is fine. But it's hot outside. But they really built that place up. I'm a huge fan of Singapore. I mean, only because of the food. I think Singapore <laughs> has some of the best selection of food because it's Malaysia. You get all the, you get a lot of the influence from you know Asia. You get some of the influence from over you know India and Pakistan coming this way because mm-hmm. Singapore, where it is, it's a you know it's a major through port. Yeah, and you can go down there. And I remember spending, I think it was three dollars. $3 for a huge bowl of rice with some uh, smoked pork cut, you know, smoked pork cutlets on top, mm-hmm. three bucks mm-hmm. and a warm, and a warm beer. You know, you oh, wow. enjoy sitting over the fish market because that's where it was. It was, it was above the fish market and kind of a little kiosk off the beaten path. It wasn't, you know, the food court at the mall. It was 
me and my buddy liked to go explore and we would go off grid completely. And that's some of the best, best food I've ever had is just in those little, those little back alleys in Singapore. Uh, expensive yes singapore is expensive mm -hmm. especially if you're paying if you're going to the hooters or you're going to outback or you want to go see the nightlife and you want to you want to go to hard rock cafe which all those things that are all the western culture things are in singapore but you're going to pay usually about 25 to 30 percent markup over what you'd be paying back here in the states for the experience right because over there it's imported it's yeah. not hey this is local it's imported so uh it can get pricey if if you if you're not watching what you're doing if you're doing typical tourist thing American sailor, uh, but if you like I said get off the beaten path I think Singapore is, yeah I'm thinking about the food right now just how how amazing it was because no matter where you went you could get delicious food. Hmm. I've been to other places too, but those are the ones that those are the ones that stick out to me as far as foreign ports. So I'm trying to think. So you you got in '89. Did you ever see, there was a documentary that came out in, I think, 86 called Top Gun. You might have, have you, have you heard of that? I don't recall it being a documentary, but yeah. <laughs> did, 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 that, uh, did that film at all influence you at all? Uh, I never saw that movie till I was in the Navy. No way. Right, yeah, it wasn't, I wow. wasn't a big, I wasn't a huge movie buff. I spent the, my formative years, um, so like I told you, my dad was military and he mm -hmm. was Coast Guard. His my high school years, ninth grade, I was in New Orleans. Tenth grade, I was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Eleventh grade, I was in Orlando, Florida. Twelfth grade, I was in Cocoa Beach, Florida. We moved every year that I was in school. Wow. There wasn't a lot of time to to dawdle, and I was and I was academically top notch. I mean, my my grades were reflected that until my 11th grade year when I when I learned about people and socializing and actually you know communicating <laughs> with other human beings because before it was all head down in the books wow. you know all the time I mean I was I, I was smart I guess you know I was, I was intelligent but mm -hmm. you know after when you're you're in high school and you start you know you start discovering other human beings so you're smart and focused smart and focused and you stayed Smart, but not as focused. No, no, no. I would say I <laughs> okay. wasn't as focused and I wasn't as smart because my grades started to slip a little bit. Yeah. I mean, maybe it had something to do with, I don't know, the, you know, I think it was the Challenger. Yeah, I think the Challenger explosion. Because of where I lived in Orlando, we actually, they they rolled in the old AV equipment, you know, the TV on the rolling stand, oh, yeah, and they brought it in they, and they put yeah, it up on the TV. Too, you yeah. could go outside if you wanted to because from Orlando... You could see the trail. Oh wow! Uh, so yeah, it was pretty amazing. I think maybe that, maybe that kind of did something. You know, you think about, wow, that, I can't believe something like that could happen. And you know, here we are watching it on TV, and it's yeah, it's, it is what it is. You know. Mm -hmm. And then when we moved out to Cocoa Beach, I actually got lucky enough to do a temp job parking for the shuttle launches. So you're two, you know two miles away from the platform watching the, the space shuttle take off. Wow. Or I could get home from school watch the countdown on the TV and then run out and hop on the roof because Cocoa <laughs> Beach is literally, we are a mere Coopville to, you know, Langley away from watching the shuttle take off. So, and so you're saying the Challenger shuttle when it blew up, that that influenced you negatively towards schooling? Like, like, or no, no it, it, it made you, I think, you know, after the Challenger accident, maybe I think something, kind of galvanized like hey you know the military nasa is basically a military outfit they're they're mm -hmm. organized you know they they have a budget i mean there's, they're not 
much different than the military. And I always had a fascination with, you know, the shuttle, you know, ever since, you know, James Bond and Moonraker, you know. You yeah. Know, it's like, wow, <laughs> he, he took off from the back of a 747. That's awesome. You know, I've always been fascinated with the shuttle, you know, and kind of just how it is and, you know, uh, watching the creeper take it out there, you know, and, and, and being so close, I'm pretty sure that had an influence militarily for me. Yeah. Um, and obviously being there, you know, it's, it's a, it's a space town. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people there that, that were feeding the, you know, the NASA the space monster there. Plus it's also a huge, you know, a cruise ship port there as well in, mm-hmm. in Cocoa Beach. But I think watching it, you know, and everybody kind of huddled around basically for that, those few hours, a couple of days on there. I don't know. Maybe schoolwork didn't seem as important or, you know, as, you know, as being, I don't know, having friends, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Robert, so speaking of history, you've been around and seen a lot of changes on the ships. And I mean, and I remember, I mean, as, as we talked about before, I remember watching Top Gun. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing the final countdown, which is a great movie. And the carriers on those boats, like there were no women on board the ship. Obviously, that has changed. <laughs> what, can, you, can you tell us kind of about like what was what was that transition like? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, my first deployment, nineteen ninety three, uh, there were no women on the ship. It was it was an all male crew, um, and you know it was the, the kind of thing that during the crossing the line ceremony, you know, after you know wog days we call it. Once I had my rite of passage, I walked from the flight deck back to my birthing compartment in my underwear. Because. Can you explain the crossing the line ceremony? Oh, crossing the line ceremony, certainly. Um, (laughs) So when you cross the equator uh, in in a ship, uh, until you do that, you're, you know, you're a slimy polywog. You know, that's what you're called. And uh, the Navy is steeped in tradition and, and, you know, and they had, in the past, there may have been whippings and beatings. Uh, There may have (laughs) been food ingestion of an unsavory nature, but... In 93, when I crossed the equator, uh, I did have to scurry around on my belly and eat green eggs and, and uh, spaghetti for breakfast. And I do remember the guy next to me throwing up. On, oh. He was on his belly and he was throwing up into his plate. And I'm a young man. I'm like, all right, let's go. We can get this. And I, I finished my food. And it's more, you know, more so the people that have already done it can can haze or pass on the tradition to the to the people that have not and i was a have not so i spent the bulk of my day on my hands and knees crawling around getting doused with salt water and, and getting doused with you know pepper you know like tabasco doing crab walks and doing various physical things and getting into the dunker and you know with the green sea dye and swimming in that and when that's all done and you are accepted into the or you know the fraternal fraternal order of shellbacks, you're done. Mm-hmm. I kicked off my boots. They threw all the boots and clothing overboard. Everything went into the ocean. So you know we can you're uh, you're more than 27 miles off the coast. You can dump all your waste into the ocean, right? It's international right. water. So, uh, but the time I by the time I had taken all my dirty stuff off, all I had on was my underwear, and I walked from the flight deck down to my birthing space in my underwear. And it wasn't it wasn't taboo because there's nothing but men men on the ship. Um, that all changed. You know, my second deployment in '95, where um, we started slowly introducing women into the Navy, and you know compartments had to be sectioned off. You know, heads have to be broken up so there can be a male and female head. There had to be male and female 
living spaces, but the bulk of the ship after that was the same, except for the store. Now they were stuck in maxi pads and tampons, you know, and feminine products, which mm-hmm. again, easy to get used to. I mean, I'm, I mean, we've all we've all been around women. It's kind of weird how some guys took it as this is a threat and I need to act out, and others are like, I have sisters, I have a mother. I mean, it's yeah, it's not hard to fathom. A woman can be smarter than you or maybe more capable, or if anything, she can carry toolboxes and, you know, just like anybody else. And we can go up and we can go up there and fix airplanes, you know? Uh, so there were some that didn't want to adjust and, and not get used to it. But what had to happen was, you know, movies had to be watched and movies couldn't be, you know, certain movies, training videos couldn't be watched in the shop anymore. You're, uh, you're, you're, I'm seeing quotes around uh, training videos. Training so. videos, pornography. I'll just call <laughs> yeah, it what it is: pornography. You know, I mean, which is prevalent. It's you know, when, you, when yeah. it's an all male ship, you know, pornography is going to be there. It's a it's a thing, right? You can't just you can ignore it, but everybody knows it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was one of those things. It was made clear, you know, as long as you had leadership supporting and the people that were in charge supported it, right? Like, hey. I remember them coming into our our space on the ship going, hey, that Kathy Ireland Budweiser poster has to come down. And, you know, compliance doesn't mean agreement, right? Just because you comply with it doesn't mean that you agree with it. But right. oh, copy that. I'll comply with it. Now, some people are like, well, Kathy Ireland's not naked. She's just in a bathing suit. Mm-hmm. And others are like, okay, got it. Let's take it down. Um, send the magazines, the Playboys and the Hustlers and the and the Wii magazine and the Jugs and the whatever magazine can't have those anymore and if you did have them you know keep them to yourself like anything else uh this podcast is not brought to you by those magazines not definitely not those magazines uh so like anything else uh you get used to it and you become accustomed to it same thing with you know anthrax shots when the military made people get anthrax shots uh same thing when don't ask don't tell was instituted then repealed um Mm -hmm. I, for one, being a technician and as a maintenance manager and a leader, I, don't, I really don't, you know, I don't care what your persuasion is. Just a couple of ground rules. Don't push your persuasion on me and just do your job. Yeah. It's real easy. So obviously in any society, in any micro society that a carrier is a micro society, uh, you're going to have some, you're going to have some people that don't like that and want to point fingers and want to, and want to act out and, and do stupid stuff. I will tell you that some of the drawbacks are relationships. You know, you, you can't avoid it. You put men and women together in a, in a in an enclosed space or in a confined space or in a confined area of operation, i.e. go out on a ship and you guys are in close-knit, you're working side by side every day together. There's going to be relationships. And unfortunately, one of the worst things, you know, anybody can do is try to have a relationship with somebody they work with. Because if there's a fallout, you got to be around that person every day. You got to look at them every day. And if it's a bad breakup... It gets gets to the point that you know one of you's got to go, and the military doesn't adapt well to that, you know. Because once people get assigned to a unit, you're there for a number of years. The Navy and, and the organization has invested time and, and effort into you, and they're expecting a return on that. And when something like that happens, whether it's sexual misconduct, sexual assault, harassment of any kind, you know, and and you get these individuals working to, that work well together, and suddenly they don't work well together it really undermines a lot of what's going on out on there. So I don't blame women and I don't blame men. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a fallout just from, you know, making people work together because I'm sure there were problems with all the men on there. there were always fights. There was always somebody getting in a scuffle. So, you know, introducing women, I, 
for me, I just got used to it. I thought it was a welcome addition. Let's go. Let's get to work. You know, let them, you know, it's not like it's a sexist society. Let's get them out there and let them experience some of the cool stuff, like working on the flight deck, you know, working on a flight deck at night, you know, uh, sweating in 135 degree weather on the flight deck while, you know, while you're trying to fix airplanes or getting drenched by a monsoon, excuse me, off the coast of Kuala Lumpur or something like that. You know, it's just one of those things that I got to see all of it. But some of the, some of the drawbacks are there's just, there's always idiots out there that want to, they want to test the boundaries yeah. of the rules, right? So yeah, that's a yeah. You had to put cipher locks on the female birthing so people couldn't walk in there because you had a couple instances of of dudes just walking in like, oh, I lost my way. No, you didn't. You didn't lose your way. You knew right where you were going. Yeah. Putting security cameras, you know, in certain areas. You know, why should you have to do that? It's because people are, you know, even in even in the navy, even on a carrier, there are people that are untrustworthy. So. It's it's uh, has it's, it, it's had its positive and its negatives, but I think in, in the greater scheme of things, it's all positive. Really, it's a majority of it's positive. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I know on tall ships. I mean, I've had crews. I've only had one crew where it was all guys. That was only for a few weeks. That that was an interesting experience. That was that was unlike. I don't know. It was weird. It was just you know. But but normally you have you know a, a handful to to sometimes I've had almost all majority female crew. It just just depends. Depends on the ship and, and just luck, really. It's kind of more of a dice roll. Yep. But you were talking about microcultures. And oh, sorry, when we were talking, there's like a million and one questions I have. And I have to kind of pick and choose. So it's like, what, what would be most interesting? Yeah, ask them all. And I just, I, you know, <laughs> but the problem is we're going to start telling you another story. And then, and then I, I, have a very, I have a pretty good memory. But but I don't want to be an hour later like, well, let's go back to this one thing. You know, yeah. so, so it's, I kind of do have to pick and choose a little bit. But. You're talking about microcultures. So the carrier is a microculture, right? Any boat is a microculture. I get that. But within the boat, especially on a boat that size with that many different departments, with that many different jobs, with that many, like, there has to be microcultures within microcultures. I mean, you have the officers versus, you know, the commission versus non-commissioned officers versus the, the what, what would it be? The different divisions, departments. Di- different departments. Uh, I mean... Even I would imagine that the fighter pilots have their own culture versus the electronics fight, you know, pilots and the bomber pilots. It, like even their subcultures within the subculture. Oh, let me give you some. I'll give you some context. So a carrier has a has a staffing, right? Just like a ship has has any kind of staffing. Now the unique thing about a carrier is the carrier as a ship has ship's company, the people that are assigned to that carrier. Now, okay. people that are in the squadron, we're not assigned to that carrier. We don't have orders. We're not we're not stationed on the USS Abraham Lincoln or the USS Chauncey Steps. We are stationed at a squadron, VAW, whatever, VFA, whatever, a squadron. We are we are attached to that squadron. That squadron, in turn, is attached to an air wing, and that air wing is attached to a certain carrier. And it could it could change. They could go on one carrier, one deployment, and that air wing can move to another carrier on a, on a, on a subsequent deployment. So we're not ship's company. So the good microculture example would be ship's company versus the air wing, right? Because we're not we're not part of the ship. So for things that happen like uh, general quarter drills or um, when they do uh, any kind of ship board drills, the air wing normally does not participate. Now we we participate from man overboard drills and sequences like that, uh, flight deck fire, hangar deck, hangar deck fire. Where there's a drill and they want to train. We'll be involved with that. For the majority of the ship casualties, the air wing will just will stay in our 
our office space and watch TV, you know, while you guys are out there, while the ship's company guys are drilling. Uh, conversely, whenever you're attached to a ship, your your sea counter, it's a, it's a rolling counter. It keeps moving. So if you're assigned to a carrier, the day you get there, that's day one. And every day following that, when you're assigned to that ship, it, that number goes up by the days that you're assigned. And then you get sea pay based on the number of days you've been on sea duty. Mm -hmm. So the air wing, though, our counter does not start to actually step on the ship. And we're physically on the ship. But the guys that are assigned to that that boat, their counter moves all the time. Or, or did. I don't know what the new rules are. Mm -hmm. So for somebody who's been in 32 years and some change... I only have six years of sea time, but I do tout that that is no kidding. Six years of actual on the water time. Now, maybe if I was ship's company, I might have 10, 11 years because I was assigned to a carrier. So there's a, there's a, there's a, I won't say there's a rub there, but I will say that you start getting a ship's company mentality versus the air wing mentality. Like there's your microcultures, right? Yeah. And, then, and it could be, I, I remember reading or hearing this somewhere, I'm not sure, but that Navy sea time counts, like when it translates to the civilian world, I, I believe, don't quote me on this, I think it's like it, it counts as a quarter of a of like like a day out at sea. And I, I, I could be wrong. I, I could be wrong. It's, it's actual. It is actual. So my, okay. my sea counter would start. That translates to I, civilian. I don't know what, I don't know what happens in civilian, but yeah, I, I, yeah. I have to get a certain number of sea days before I start getting paid for sea pay. Okay. So there has to be a threshold. Like I can't just go out for a day or two and get two days worth of sea pay. You know, the Navy wants you to accrue a certain amount. Then they will start paying you sea pay. Is there a different pay? So did you do any combat tours? Like were there deployment or combat deployment, I guess would be the better description. One would have to define combat. As in you're launching, God, I, mean, I guess we're always launching planes that are dropping bombs, but like you're launching planes in uh, Afghanistan, for example, like were you participating on carriers that were doing the eight hour or 15 hour round trip, you know, flights I, I personally over Pakistan? Was, I, I personally was never in harm's way. So I consider right. combat me being fired upon. But were the but I was were combat support. We support. were combat okay. support. So when you when you boil it down, nobody took rounds over the bow. I mean, I was not right. ever exposed to any danger other than the ones that were on the flight deck by themselves, right? <laughs> or the food or whatever was on the ship, right? Those are the only dangers I was exposed to. <laughs> the food, okay, okay. <laughs> or liberty. I feel you know. like there's some more stories there. Well, yeah, there probably is. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we had com we consider ourselves combat support. So some of the greatest things that I've seen. Uh, in my military career is I have seen a Russian bear fly over the carrier at like, you know, 600 feet when we used to play war games with the Russians, you know, who oh, could wow. launch, who could launch their alert faster. Yeah. You know, when you think about, oh, there goes a Russian bomber over the flight deck and we don't have our aircraft in the area. We could, we're dead. Basically, if you think about it, if we want to play the game, this game, we lost. The next game we might mean we might get that Tomcat airborne and, and intercept that you know the, the bear before he gets out there, um, but yeah, I, I've definitely seen I've seen planes take off fully laden with ordnance and come back empty. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, I have some of that jewelry we call it at my house. You know, from a friend of mine that was working uh, on the fighters. He was an, he was an ordnance guy, and I say, hey, give me some of those. And I signed a few. I signed a few bombs on the flight deck myself with a grease pencil. Uh, but for the majority of my career, it was all exercise, you know, Operation Southern Watch, uh, basically supporting no-fly zones and supporting uh, non-combat, more of a police action kind of events. But when shock and awe happened, you know, right or wrong or indifferent, 
I got to watch ordnance leave the ship and that ordnance did not come back. Uh, and we did that a number of years, obviously. And I was, and I was, uh, involved with some of that, you know, being flight deck support, maintenance support. Uh, and even then doing, uh, most recently, you know, anti-submarine operations, you know, the, the P3, P8 community, uh, is heavy duty into anti-submarine, you know, and the Russians, you know, we know they have subs, they know we have subs. And it's, again, yeah. it's a game that we play all the time. I've even made jokes like, what if we just didn't go after him? Like he knows that we know he's there. If <laughs> think about how much money we're spending, putting airplanes and people in a place that he knows we're going to be there and we know where he is. Wouldn't he save any money if he just didn't go out? I get it. it it's I'm, it's way above my pay grade to even yeah. try to fathom why they do what they do. But I mean, you talk about, you know, I won't say waste, but when you talk about expenditure of military and expenditure of, you know, people, resources, equipment, everything, and then the wear and tear on equipment and the wear and tear on resources, both sides are paying for all that when I get it. You're, you're, you're flexing your, your muscle. I'm going to put my boats and my planes right at the end of where you think I need to be just to test your boundaries. Like, it seems a lot, seems like some generates a lot of waste in my opinion. So some of the things we did, like I said, right or wrong or different. Um, I was, uh, in a unique place to, to be there when, when this, some of that stuff happened. And, but I was never, again, I don't consider myself in combat unless, you know, unless I'm being fired upon. Where where were you on nine eleven? Were you on a ship? So I had just uh, I had just left my teaching job at uh, in Point Magoo, California, which is right in the, right by Camarillo, about I don't know about thirty minutes north of Malibu, California. That's where that's where the base was, and I had just left my teaching job there, and I was in between duty stations. I was actually on leave. I was enjoying some time with my family, my wife, and my kids. And I got up that morning and I came out and my wife's like, hey, you see this on TV? And I remember looking at it and just like, oh, you guys are watching a movie. It's pretty cool. The movie looks all right. And just, I don't know, like most of us in disbelief, like, am I seeing what I'm seeing? And of course, you know, from that point forward, we're all glued to the TV to find out, to find out what's going on. And the phone rang and it was my, it was the next command I was checking into and I just, I kind of had a feeling like we're going to war kind of thing. Like they're calling me because they want me to check in because we just got ordered to deploy. So they called me and I, and I go, yeah. Uh, we said, we need you to check in. I'm like, oh, yeah. And they go, we just want you to check in because the squadron next to us just got ordered to deploy. Mm-hmm. And if you don't check in, you're what we call free. You're loose personnel. You're in between. They can grab you and take and take. So we want you to check in. That way we can gain you as an asset of ours so they can't take you so i said we'll put you right back on leave and i go okay so i went over and i checked in and then of course it was um i forgot the name of the operation i want to say it was new dawn i don't know i'm probably misquoting it you know the next day you're looking up in the sky and you don't hear anything like normally brown we're just you know where point magoo is you're only an hour's drive from lax but you hear no there's no air traffic. But quiet. The only thing in the air was maybe, you know, one of the planes from the base because the military had, was the only people that were authorized to fly at that time. I remember how eerily quiet the skies were. No contrails, you know, no vapor trails in the air, in the, in the sky. And I remember thinking like, nobody, when you think about it, nobody is going anywhere. 
like normally people are flying every day. How many people fly every day in the, in this country? Or at least back then, it had to have been in the you know thousands. Every day there was somebody getting on a plane, going to see a friend or a family, oh, yeah. going to a business meeting, going on vacation. And I just remember thinking, nobody's going anywhere. And nobody wanted to. We were all glued to the TV. We wanted to know what was going on. We wanted to know who did it, uh, you know. I like the fact that 9-11, well, I don't know if I like it. It's kind of, I'm having mixed feelings on it. That people started getting patriotic. You know, American flags were up and flags were in front yards and flags were everywhere. And um, people were singing songs about flags and there were the artists were doing their thing. I just remember kind of thinking, yeah, that, that's great and all, but, you know, where was that before? You know, it kind of bothered me. And on some level, it bothered me. Again, right, wrong, or different. It just bothered me, and mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, of course, I, I joined the military in '89. You know, well before 9/11, well before anything, and uh, I knew when I joined, I was going to do 20 years. I knew that right away, and there was no doubt in my mind that 20, I'm going to do this. So 9/11, yeah, um, it changed a lot for for the country completely. And I, I remember I asking people from time to time before 9-11, do you remember what the airport was like? Yeah. Before 9-11, when you could walk all the way to the gate, you know, to meet your family. It's kind of one of those things you don't, you get used to. Like now it's, nope, I don't, yeah. you know, the, this generation is never going to know, never going to know what it's like to get out of your car, walk all the way to the gate and meet your family coming off the plane. Yeah. They're never going to get that experience. Uh, I remember leaving the, I was leaving for Germany. First time my, my family was letting me go abroad for like many weeks all by myself, you know, and, and I was only 14 years old and, uh, and, and think now that I'm a dad, I'm like, holy crap, <laughs> you know, like what, what a thing to let your son go. And yeah, the whole family was there right at the gate, you know, all that stuff. And then, and then, uh, I was in the plane and, and like waiting the plane, it was about to leave. And then, and my mom, like she, she very brave of her. She convinced the the person at the gate to let her out on the tarmac. <laughs> you know, so she literally came on the tarmac to wave goodbye to me. It was just wonderful. So, yeah, yeah, that'll never happen anymore for sure. So when you got back on the sh- the next time you were deployed, the next time you were on a carrier, was there? You, you said everything changed. Was was there a different feeling the next time you deployed? So did you feel it in the air or or? What so that, that year, um, that was the year 2002 that I actually made chief. I made, I picked up chief um, right after we, right after we deployed, right after we left port. Uh, we pulled into Hawaii and the commanding officer came up and he was talking to me and I was, cause I was working on the plane day one in port in Hawaii. And uh, he came up in his dress whites uh, along with the CMC, who's the command master chief. And he started talking to me and he said, can you do a better job as a chief? And I was like, well, probably could. And he said, congratulations, you know, you, you made chief. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. And for the Navy, it's a big deal to go from E6 to E7. Uh, we're the only service that makes a huge deal out of it. There's, there's a crucible and, and a rite of passage that goes with E6 to E7 in the Navy. And that's a process that I went through. You know, there were some things I had to do yeah, some of it contrary to human nature, some of it well-intended, you know, uh, meaning behind it. And there were some asinine things that were going on during the process. But I was really eight weeks of that time, 2002, my first deployment, eight weeks of that was me taking up trying to learn how to be a chief. And I remember that the day I made it, 
you know, weight lifted, tired, been up for 48 hours, you know, I'm, I'm just ready to hit the rack. And I told the mass chief, you know, the main mass chief, I said, hey, uh, it's nine o'clock. I'm going to go hit the rack. I'll be in, you know, I'll be in at seven. He goes, you'll be here at five. You're, new, you're, new, you're the new flight deck coordinator. So, I mean, as soon as I put, you know, the chief anchors on and I wore the khakis, that next day I was on the flight deck. And I had done deployments before that. But again, like I told you, it was all, yep, you're going to load training ordnance on it. We're going to go out and pretend we're doing, and we would never do any, never drop any ordnance. There was nothing, there was nothing really, nothing really to it. Uh, but this time, those weren't practice bombs. Those weren't practice missiles on the planes. Those were the real deal. And they're being loaded up with the intent that they were probably going to get used. Uh, so definitely, a, a, I think, a sense of accomplishment, especially, if, you know, from somebody who's been out there before in the Persian Gulf and, you're, and you go out there and, again, you're just you're making circles in the water. You're just putting holes in the water. You're not really doing anything. You're a deterrent. You're a carrier. You're a force to be reckoned with, and nobody's going to, you know, when the police are driving through your neighborhood, nobody's going to commit a crime. Right. So there's always a carrier present, but it never did anything, right? Um, and again, I go back to my statement. It's how we feel about how, you know, the administration pursued the enemy, if you will, you know, who we consider the enemy and what we did to them and where we dropped our ordinance. As far as somebody that's been out there many, many times, there was a, an immense self immense feeling of satisfaction among the crew that we were finally doing something out, out there. We were mm-hmm. finally actually not attacking the enemy. We were finally making somebody accountable or we were finally doing those things that maybe we should have been done or not done, but we're doing something, right? It, it's better than going out there and twiddling your thumbs. Every yeah. time I go, I was twiddling the thumbs. So 93, 95, 98, all twiddling thumbs, just again, making holes in the water out there. I, I did. If I may, from sure, a total academically, <laughs> like civilian perspective, uh, that maybe isn't worth anything, but but I would argue, uh, so it might have felt like that, but so the, the U.S. government has done gun to, gun, gunboat deployment. We're we kind of invented it actually. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to do a, a, a solo episode. Hey, here's a nice. so just so folks know, I'm going to do a, a solo episode on the um, the Barbary Pirate Wars of 1805. Which is where the Marine Corps got its kind of, you know. You know I read the book, Thomas Jefferson's War on Terrorism. Okay, well, there you the go. So, I should probably read that book. I'm I more of a, uh, it's, it's more of a summary, but um, <clears throat> not like a 50-page summary or whatever. But ba- basically, yeah, like like that was the invention of gunboat diplomacy, which was extraordinarily effective. And uh, now, now that was obviously they're actively shooting. They're actually blockading the harbor. They're actively taking out boats. They're actively, right. you know holding siege but but the point was you could send out ships and project power mm-hmm. and then it did eventually become you know once that happened enough when other countries started doing it then it's like oh actually all you need to do is show up well at, at least you have some diplomacy like like i remember reading black hawk down and the diplomat that was sent in to talk to i forget the head fellow of of um in charge of mogadishu or or of uh, you know whatever the, the guy was we were trying to oust anyway like, like this guy coming in, had we not had a carrier task force off the, off like in sight, literally in visible, visible sight from right. the coastline, it's like, what was, hey, could you get back Mike Durant, please? Like, like, would you mind, please, just right. doing this? And like, what's a warlord gonna say? Like, what do they ever say in those situations for thousands of years? Like, no. <laughs> they laugh at you, you know. But you throw out a carrier, and you're like, look, they're gonna hit something. It's gonna be bad. 
Yeah. Like it might be the wrong thing. Oh yeah. I, I, like, I agree you, with what you're yeah, saying. You know, it's, it's so, so that's, I mean, so yeah, like, like, and I know it's that weird, it's that must be a horrible feeling to be like, oh, we're just not doing any good. But, but it is, like you said, it's the police officer patrolling. Yeah. It's a deterrent for know. sure. Yeah. But it, you know, for people that, you know, that want to, I'm not saying warmongering is, is the thing. I'm just saying that yeah. you, you go many years out there and you don't, you, all you're doing is police action, right? You're a deterrent. For some, you know, it was a, it was an, an immense satisfaction that we were finally doing something to somebody. You know, like when Saddam Hussein had to go, he had to go. What he did to the Kuwaitis, you know. Um, so again, right, wrong, or indifferent, we were taking action. So we were we were bombing things. We were, and again, people were all excited about it. And I just I think there was some satisfaction felt that we're finally out here doing what we're supposed to be doing out here. Now, yeah, looking back, maybe we shouldn't have done what we did, but <laughs> it's too late now. Damn, you know, it's, it's kind of done. So the air on the ship was more of a, hey, you know, everybody was behind us, you know. Uh, I mean, yeah. when the president flies on your carrier. George Bush flew on your carrier? Yeah. The one you were deployed on? Yeah. Oh, wow. So that's a good story. So <laughs> we're out doing... Our, our task, right? We're out doing what the commander-in-chief of the, of the country ordered. We get the order to, okay, you're done out here in the Persian Gulf. It's time for you to head home. So most of the time, a carrier will come out of the Persian Gulf. There'll be another carrier out there. They'll shake hands. Some things will move back and forth. And then you'll head home. I'm, I'm sorry. What does shaking hands look like between carriers? How does it's that work? Pretty massive. <laughs> so again, whatever, whatever ordinance is on board, we will, we will offload our ordinance onto the ship coming in. So we have... The... Helicopters, helicopters, or helicopters, or helicopters, or at sea, at sea replenishment back and forth. Okay. Uh, so we, there's no reason to take that stuff home. Plus, most of the time, those assets don't belong to you. Everything is broken up into fleets. So if a certain fleet, they're going to keep them there, right? Those are those are like fifth fleet assets. Yeah, which makes sense. From right, you don't want to take them home. They don't they don't belong to you. Wow, the U.S. military is so good at logistics. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. That's a whole different podcast you, on you logistics. About, yeah, no. Oh boy. Okay. Anyway, so. Anytime there's a handshake, it's it's more of a high five. Like, hey, we're done. We're done standing on the watch. You got it. And that's a whole other carrier and a whole other air wing. Another four to 5,000, 6,000 people that go out and do their job. We're on our way home. And most of the time, that is a seemingly slow, but not a fast trip home. Your carrier is not going to be going very fast, but it's we're going home. You know, there's usually a straight shot all the way home. This time... We knew, we knew, somebody knew, we were going to be meeting the president off the coast of California. Because I clearly remember, and I'm going to just, I'm just going to guess, okay? We had definitely broken the the no wake zone and the wake speed for Singapore. Because I remember being on the flight deck, looking back, moving through Singapore, the Straits of Malacca, I think. Mm-hmm. And we were... In a ten to twelve foot wake behind us, and these and there's people living on the, the side of the river or the side of the water, and they're just we're tossing them. Oh, no. And a cruise ship pulled out in front of us, and I remember the ship whistle going off because the vessel, you know, going mm-hmm. straight has got the right of way. Basically, is the stand. Yeah, I just did my boat or course. I should have probably failed it. Um, it's well, 
Oh, it's the one that it, it doesn't give so, way. We are we are once you're in a position and then you're being cut off. It, it, you'd have to give me the entire context. Sorry, in the channel is it? We're already in the channel. Okay, well, if you're in the channel and you're he, yes, yeah, the, so the he cut us the channel off. has the right of way. Yes, you're constrict, yeah. That's, so I remember that's the horn him. going off the ship's horn, yeah. which the carrier's horn's pretty damn loud, and that other guy was not stopping. So the ship, obviously, they put it in. When you say cruise ship, I'm picturing like one yeah. massive, massive. Yeah, yeah, Straits of Malacca is busy, so we wow. we were somebody. Can't believe they wouldn't be on the radio nope. with you. They ignored us, so they. Th- I knew I. I don't know if they threw the carry in reverse or not, but we cavitated big time. The back of the ship was shut. Oh so we had to stop, decision. let him go, and then back back at it. So I didn't realize why we were going so fast. I'm like, I've never yeah. gone this fast with the Straits of Malacca. This doesn't make any sense. Are we in a hurry? Yeah, George Bush had made an arrangement with one of the S3 squadrons. He went through the training and he. He got on the he got on an S three, and they he flew out to the carrier and you know the guys that are on the on the speaker box just saying hey the president's gonna land people stay away from him let him get off the the flight deck was flooded with people <laughs> flooded with people um, he got down inside the ship and uh, I was more aft of the ship where I worked kind of like almost almost by the fantail by the aft of the ship like frame 225 or something like that, which only goes up to like frame 300 so I'm way I'm pretty much in the last one quarter of the ship is where I work he actually walked by where I were and stopped he stopped and talked to me shook his hand he was on his way back to the treadmills to get a to get a workout in and I remember thinking man he's a lot smaller than I he looks a lot bigger on TV like he does he he looks like a large man but he's a little bit shorter than me but that's when he did his mission accomplished speech from the carrier. So, you know, that's unprecedented. But again, we're, we're talking about that period of time. It's almost like everybody was behind the military. You know, every, everybody, it didn't matter who you were, everybody supported the military. And I think that some of that is, has lasted a good long while. Support our troops is one of those movements that's lasted since then. We're talking 2002. You know, here we are in 19 years, wounded warrior, you know, you name it. And the support for troops has never waned. So I like the fact that nobody blamed us. You know what I mean? Like different people made decisions. Yeah. We're the arm of the, you know, we're the, we're the hammer. We're not the, we're nothing else. Um, and I, I like the fact that, you know, um, people say, thank you for your service. And they, and they say certain things and they treat the military, you know, was it the same before 2002? I don't know. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't take time to recognize it. But I, I can't say it wasn't. I can't say it wasn't. I just know that maybe ever since then, you know, the outpouring for support for the troops and maybe people getting recognized for PTSD and people getting helped. Uh, you know, the, the push-ups, the twenty-one, you know, for suicide awareness. And a lot of that stuff has come to light. You know, so kind of like Lance Armstrong, right? Yeah. Did he cheat? Yeah. Everybody cheated, but he did raise he did raise a bunch of money for cancer research. I mean, it, it, right, wrong way to go about it, but you know, the result was this. Same thing with, not the same thing with the military, but that's, that's, I draw a really loose connection between the two. Um, that military, you know, support is, is, is nice to see that it hasn't waned in any way. Um, it's a long way to explain how life was on the ship in 2002, but that's kind of going here and there. Just, but there was a lot of satisfaction of what we were doing and, and how we were being supported and and uh, how America thought of us. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Okay. No, I think it does. I think it does. And like you said, the, the feeling of having... I mean, I can't imagine. You're in training for... 
for what, essentially 13 years, probably 12, 13 years. Yeah. Not like just, yeah, I could see like why, like, like going through the routine and all that. It, it, that must have been tricky. Um, I mean, the closest I were, which is nothing. I, I, I um, so we were on a, a ship in Maine and a hurricane was coming in. It was Hurricane Earl. Mm. And all the other ships around us were kind of preparing for the hurricane. But like my boat, Captain's was like, we're going to be ready. And so I, I remember we just, we like triple gasketed the sails. And I went up and, and the, the, the gaff topsails were so tight. They were just like, like a rock. I mean, literally like a rock. I like, <laughs> I was exhausted, exhausted after furling the sails. We spent hours and hours and hours where other boats like, yeah, maybe put an hour in two hours. Right. We spent all day. And I was, I was, and part of me, it was the weirdest thing because I, I kind of, I get it. I get why people in the military, you know, they train and they do all this stuff and they just, I, I never understood like, oh, I just wanted to see what would happen. I wanted, you know, I want to see how I would react in combat. I want to see how I would react, you know, if the training would work and all that. I never fully understood that until that moment because that evening I was just, I was so excited. I'm like, Oh, I hope the hurricane comes. Like, <laughs> I just want to see how well we do. Yeah. You know, and, and I had dreams. I remember I literally had a dream that night that I was on this grassy, sunny hilltop and there were clouds flying by at a thousand five hundred miles an hour, like like at the speed of Neptune's you know, clouds, just like screaming by over right. a thousand miles an hour. Wake up in the morning, less than five knots of wind. <laughs> there was nothing. Glass call. But you were ready. Oh, we were ready. But I was like, dang it! Like the hurricane, like I forget what happened, veered away or whatever. It's like, oh man. <laughs> so so that's like the closest I've come. So, so I, I get it now. I, I understand. That whole like you do all this preparing and, yeah. and you just part of you studying for the big tests and there's yeah. never a test. There's never a test. It's fascinating. That's kind of what the military is about: is you you study, you study, and you train, and you prepare for because one day there will be a test, and you know nobody wants to fail, nobody wants to do poorly, if yeah. you will. And you know the military, like anybody, like any other high stress organization, wants you to react not out of fear. They want your responses to be more thoughtful and automatic. Yeah. Um, I, I've had, I've seen, you know, I've, I've been involved in flight take fires and, you know, the training, the training pays off. The yeah. training definitely pays off because, you know, by the time I got to the flight deck, there was, there was chunks of airplane and, and AFFF everywhere. And the fire was out. I mean, it was three, four minutes. It, it was out, you know, um, so accidents happen and you just want to be ready. So again, it's nice to, you don't want to be involved in a tragedy, but you want that tragedy to have a positive outcome of some sort. Yeah. You want there to be a, you know, a silver lining. You want some, some, something to, something good to come out of it. And the things that I've been involved with that were tragic, if you will, flight take fire and uh, the collision at sea, you know, things like that. And there was, there was usually a positive outcome because people are trained you know, and, and our responses are, have to be automatic. Um, so, yeah, no, he was, I mean, I've, I've seen it, but people get panicked. They, they lose their mind. They just don't. Yeah. It's weird. You don't want them it's to freeze. Really weird. <laughs> it's the old deer in the headlights. And you know, analogy is like, yeah. you don't want to freeze. You, you need to be doing something. And, and if you train and, and you train yeah. enough, your responses become damn near automatic. Well, and that's the thing I remember, I remember learning about that in, uh, captain's course, uh, like, cause the, the lady that we have teaching it, I, she may have been ex-military. I can't remember, but, but definitely Coast Guard, I think. Uh, but she, she was kind of saying like, yeah, it's, you, you know, 80% of humans, it, like, like, you know, without training, 80% of humans are deer in the headlights. You know, I know that's my response. I'm deer in the headlights. 
But at least I don't have the 10 or 15% that tends to like poop themselves or, or get <laughs> right, right, you know, hysterical. It's just like, come on, man. <laughs> you know, uh, but then there's like five or 10% people that just naturally will like, they will just be rational and do the right thing right up to the point they die, which is, which is crazy. But she was saying with training, you can get a hundred percent of the people to be that five or 10% yeah. that's rational and doing the right thing right up to the point that they die. And um, I'm not trying to be morbid, folks, but it's just reality. It is, yeah. And so, and actually, I mean, let's talk. So folks listening to this, I don't know what your background is, but like people have, have you know, this, the military stuff, the tall ship training, all that, it, it can translate into your small boat sailor out there. Like go out and, and in a controlled environment, you know, test things and go yeah. just, just make it, make that knot tying instinctual i mean i always right. tell people like, you don't know a knot until you can tie it blindfolded behind your back while in an uncomfortable situation like then then maybe you know or then you probably know the knot right but but because what happens is yeah when people panic all like i, I remember the first time i remember not was a panic but they're like this is a you know it was a first rough situation and i was just learning my knots at that point and so it was like, tie, Johan, tie this. And like, literally, I was, I, I didn't remember what not to tie. <laughs> he told, <laughs> told me the name. I'm like, uh, uh, so I realized like, oh crap. I, you know, that, that was a real wake up call where it's like, okay, I need to practice this crap right. over yeah. and over and over and over and over. And, uh, yeah. And it, anyway, that's. Yeah. People are always ready for the comfortable day and the comfortable thing. Like, yeah, this right. is great. It's nice and sunny outside and everything's great. I will say that the military has given me the ability to, you know, to cope in stressful situations. Yeah. Um, I don't have everything locked down tight or anything like that. I'm not like some kind of wizard and I can't, you know, oosaw everything away. But I can tell you that um, physical stressors, I, I can I can handle most physical stressors. Emotional stressors, uh, you know, I think I can handle most, if not all. I'm not impervious, mind you, but yeah, the military, you know, when you start going, I took, I, I took the little boater certificate course for Washington State because I incidentally just bought a boat. Oh, really? Last week, a little 16-footer, you know, with, a, with a little, it's got its own helm and stuff. And I'm taking the boater course about, you know, channel markers and even yeah, numbers. And it goes in to talk about, you know, I had I had brain farted on the different fire extinguishers. And I'm a, you know, class Alpha Bravo Charlie. <laughs> a is makes an ash. B is basically combustible fuels, you know. And right. C is, you know, uh, combustibles. And then D, uh, is it D is? C's, uh, uh, chemical. C's a chemical, sorry. And then, you know, you've got different. And I just brain farted on one of the questions. And I was, it was a class Bravo. <laughs> um, because you do shipboard firefighting. Anytime yeah. you go out to the ship, you have to take shipboard firefighting. And it's 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 a course that they make you take and refresh over and over again because they want you to be, where are you going on a ship? You're going nowhere. If you don't fight the fire that's on the yeah. ship, <laughs> you got other, there's other options coming that you're not, maybe not ready for. Um, so the military, as much as, you know, like I said, it invests time and, and energy into you individually uh, that all you have to do is, do your job and everything will be fine. I mean, I've given lots of career advice over the years mm -hmm. to, you know, to sailors about just, just do your job and everything's going to be fine. You know, if, if your job is to stack these things in the corner and then on Tuesdays, move them to the other corner, stack them again, do that. There's yeah. probably a purpose for it, you know? And then when you're not doing that, we're going to take our time and we're going to put some, some things into you that we want, you know, we want to get some stuff out of you. And what we want out of you is, you supporting the team and how we do that is we keep you safe and secure. 
or the best uh, the best job advice. It wasn't a job advice because it wasn't advice to me, but the, it was a captain of um, he was with the Army Corps of Engineer, and he he just had a really tight crew. Like like they they had a great time, but they were learning constantly, constantly training all this stuff. And then you know, I remember he told me he said, you know, the job description, my job description, that's the bare minimum. Like like my job is everything else that I do as well. Right. You know, and so he said just. I was in my, in, and I always kind of kept that. I was like, okay, so my job is like, okay, this is my bare minimum. And now what else can I do to help out the boss and make their life easier to help out my fellow workers? And, you know, and I could do it at the, at the group pub. I, like I found, uh, well, I should probably didn't talk about it, but <laughs> found one of the extinguishers was expired, you know? And like, because I was bored. I'm just like, ah, I was like, oh, fire extinguishers. I should probably check them. Maybe we'll check these real quick. Why yeah. not? I'm sure mean, enough, one was like, oh, this isn't the same company. And it's from. Well, what you don't want to do is have a fire over yeah. by the, where you're cooking food and you reach yeah. for your extinguisher and like, oh, it doesn't work. That would suck. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> anyway, but if it's all right, can I ask you about the collision? You mentioned there was a collision at sea with, with one of the vessels. Yes. So I think it was 95 or 90. I don't remember the exact date. I do know that I've been looking for a photo, and I finally found it a few months ago. So we were doing an underway replenishment, which basically is the carriers on the port side, and the replenishment vessel is on the starboard side. And there's a tether moving goods back and forth on this tether, and then there are fuel lines hooked up to, because even though the ship's nuclear, the airplanes aren't. So we take a significant amount of fuel on board. Uh, it was the USS Sacramento, so you can look this up if you wanted to. It's not classified or anything like that. The USS Sacramento had a steering casualty. Uh, they lost steering to it. They started turning to the port. Mm-hmm. Okay, and as you know, you know, underway replenishment, you're both going usually the same speed, same direction, same, you know. Yeah, so just so, so folks they, know, Robert's using his hands, but basically the the ship on the, the right-hand side. Started the, going to the port. To, to port, so yeah. So. Okay. So I'm down in the so carriers on the left hand. Carriers on the left port. hand side. Yeah. Okay. So carriers on the port. Well, uh, it's, it's carrier is the port vessel. Yeah. The Sacramento is the starboard vessel. Yes. The Sacramento loses an, or has a steering casualty. They lose control of their steering, and they start turning to the port into the into the path of the carrier. And I was down on the hangar bay. And normally, during an underway replenishment, certain parts of the ship are off limits. Like they don't want you involved where the where the, all the linkages and mechanical gears hooked up, which is fine. Yeah. You don't want to be around that anyway. So I'm walking through the hangar bay and I hear the collision alarm. It's not, a, this is not a drill. There's a, an actual collision. It's imminent. Um, what does what that sound like? It's very annoying and loud. There, so, you know, so it's a different it's type. A, it's cause, like cause a bong, a of, bong, bong, bong. It's kind of, a lot of the alarms are like a, a bell system. Right. I'm assuming you have the, you know, three for four. It's been a while since I've heard a collision yeah. alarm, so I don't know. Wow. Okay, so it's an entirely different alarm. Sounds totally different. Sounds totally different. So not good. Not good. And then <laughs> um, they come over the, the one MC and say, you know, brace for brace for impact, basically, brace for collision. The only reason I remember the story is for two reasons. One, it's collision at sea. The other reason is I'm watching this sailor run through the hangar bay crying. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing about it, but I at the time I'm like, why are you crying? We're not dead. We're not going to die. But this this sailor was running through the hangar bay crying. Because I think, I think he thought death was imminent. Oh, wow. Right? Because, yeah. you know, we allude to 
Keep your head, keep rational. What are the, where, where are your exits? Where are your life jackets? Where's the lifeboats, right? I mean, right. I, I got my head about me. I'm not, that sailor clearly was panicking. Yeah. I remember it was the first time I was really exposed to something during the day where I was involved, like there was a, there was going to be a collision. So what should I do? Well, I did was I found a, a passageway that was going out to a sponson and I got up in the angle iron and I just turned into Spider-Man. I just put my hands up in there and said, I'm bracing for impact. The ship listed. Uh, two degrees. Which ship? Us, the carrier. Okay. So the Sacramento hit us. The carrier listed about, I don't know, two degrees. Yeah. And then went back. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't a big deal. Right. Uh, and then uh, they, they figured it out, obviously, and got the ship separated. But I clearly remember the ship's paper the next day had a photo in it. And, and the only way I can illustrate it with words is the planes were parked on the flight deck in such a manner and spaced apart enough that the fueling booms from the other ship went in between them so if we were if we were 10 to 15 feet in either direction those booms would have hit those planes oh my gosh they were in between them <laughs> and i had i was looking for the longest time for that photo and i finally found it oh my and gosh. i downloaded it and stuck it on my you know my pictures my picture because i just remember how fascinating that was that not only did we have a collision at sea that we potentially could have you know if somebody had been working on those planes or those you know they've been fueling or whatever that could have been a lot more damage than than what was initially excuse me initially happened well and then the boats are moving I they're mean, moving is, yeah you're not, and not very fast you know maybe 15 knots i mean it's not like we're we're not so it's twice the whole speed of most of the boats I've been on. Well, you know what I mean? Like when you're on a ship that size, it's, wow. that's not really fast. When you look down, you're like, okay, we're moving. But we're but, not. But I mean, to keep, well, so you're, but to keep those booms in place yeah. so they didn't just like. It was amazing to me. Just yeah, like, like what if the boat had suddenly stopped? Like, basically, all of a it was like a scissor. They just. You, you lose all whoop. of your boat planes. Done. It was amazing. So <laughs> the, ship pulled in, the ship pulled in a few days later. And uh, before we could actually walk off the ship, uh, it was because it was in Dubai. The maintenance crew was already tearing apart the side of the ship and fixing it. They were already in work. They they yeah. knew we were coming. They were set up for us. I think they had the catwalk and all the little walk areas that were damaged. They had that fixed within a, within the same day that we pulled in. This is these are U.S. maintenance crews. No, US these are it's obviously construction crews. You know, Port Authority at the time Dubai is a it, it's a pretty it's a pretty hefty port. Uh-huh. It has its own port authority. It's got lots of berths and it's a lot of a lot of cargo. So these are Dubai citizens yeah. working on yeah. US ships. So they'll go to like a husbanding agent down there on the pier. They'll okay. say, "Hey, we, we need we need you guys to get some people up here to fix this," because they're not going inside the skin of the ship. They're not actually being they're not giving access to any of the airplanes or any of the, of the okay. ship. They're just working on the exterior of the ship. So it's hey, anybody can weld right and just bend the metal back. So yeah, okay, fair enough. So again, the story is really memorable to me because of the one the sailor crying and running through the hanging bay like we were going to die yeah and then ultimately only listing a couple of degrees and then returning back to normal and me just knowing that oh collision alarm i've had this training before i think i'll i think i'll brace for impact and whatever comes next i just need to be ready for it you know yeah. just see what happens and there's no point in trying to you know you tell people all the time don't worry about things you can't control mm-hmm. worry about the things you can't control and be you know try to be ready for the other things you can't control so that was the other collision at sea. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. I mean, like I said, it's it's they got the whole story about the USS Sacramento and the USS Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you can look it up online. It's pretty 
pretty fascinating, you know, just the luck involved with wow. there was not more damage than there than there was. Yeah. Well, what are some of your other favorite stories out at sea or Ooh, yeah, or yeah. Um, training? No, so we were uh, we were in port and I had was uh, it was the first night in port and I had duty, which means I had to stay on the ship and just even though your your the ship's pulled in and we're not flying, there's still things some things to do with the planes. They may they might need a little up little upkeep, a little maintenance. So most of the time your first day in you'll get a little bit of maintenance done. So we wrapped up for the day. I think I was downstairs watching TV and I got a call saying, Hey, we need we need to move your plane. Like, move my plane, it's it's nine o'clock at night. Um why do you need it? You know, I was kind of not being an ass about it, but I was like, why do you need it moved? Cause so I can get the right people up there. Well, we got a fire. Like on my plane. No, not your plane's not on fire, but the, but the compartment below your plane is on fire. So, um, you familiar with cross deck pennants, the wires that catch the airplanes on the carrier, the arresting gear. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that arresting gear, that that's called a cross deck pennant. And that, pennant is attached on the left and right to more cabling that goes inside the airplane but that pennant can be taken off and replaced okay right so the cross deck pennant itself is steel braided but it's soldered into a fitting and that fitting is attached on either end in other words you can take that that piece and throw it away and then go and put a new one on there what the people that done that had that soldered that they left the soldering pot on they left it on and went on liberty so the soldering pot caught some rags on fire. So the rags were on fire. And inside that space was also acetylene and welding equipment of various nature because it was their maintenance room where they do all their, all their work. So if anybody's been on a carrier, I'll give you some, some uh, situational awareness here. If you were standing on the aft part of the ship, Excuse me, the aft part of the ship. You're looking at elevator four and elevator three. You're kind of in between them because the ship has. We saw the hangar deck. You can see that. You can see the hangar deck. You could look down and see a little porthole that was basically a ventilation for that space. And you could see the fire. You could see the fire in there. And okay. these guys were on the flight deck with their hose, steady streaming water into that hole. And they had every once in a while turn it off. Still on fire. Nobody could get in the space. Wow. It was locked. So nobody could get in it. So I got called. I got my plane captain up there. We hooked up to the plane. We moved it. We got it off the the metal or the you know yeah on top of the space. And it was you know there's only so many people on board. It's the first night in. There's only people on the ship are the duty section people. So I started assisting in any way I could. Mm-hmm. So I went down below and they said, hey, we want you to we want you to get access to the other side of this space over here. And you're talking about climbing through ribs of the ship you're not going through doors anymore you're actually crawling through porthole ribs to get uh so we're trying to get some access to some of the birthing compartments over there where people might be sleeping uh there's no way to put a general alarm on or they had they had an isolated incident right so they called that there was a fire yeah and remember duty sections in port so they can't they're trying to find the people to unlock the space so they can get to it meanwhile a ship has repair lockers all over it, right? Mm-hmm. So it has repair lockers ready to go. So the import fire party can go to the repair locker, get outfitted, get kitted out, and go fight a fire. I remember them going over the 1MC saying, the combo to repair locker, blah, 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 is they didn't know the combo to it. <laughs> so again, the repair locker's locked. 
the compartment that has the fires locked. It was amazing to me. And here I am, you know, crawling through the skin of the ship, basically trying to, you know, trying to help out in any way I can. I'm not fighting fire, mind you, but they finally got the repair locker open. They finally got their kitted gear and they finally got access and they finally put the fire out. But I mean, what would have happened if it would have reached the acetylene bottles or, you know, the welding equipment? You know, who knows what would have happened, right? It could have been catastrophic. Yeah. Right? You could lose the ship. You could lose the ship. And we don't want to lose the ship. So that was, I found that to be fascinating about, you know, you think you're ready. You're not. You're clearly not if you're passing the combo over the loudspeaker because they don't know the combo or the space that has the fire and it's locked and nobody can get in it. You know, you're not ready. So... We got lucky. Again, lucky. And I'll bet that mistake never happened again. Like, I'll bet regulations mm, were changed. Or, no, no, no I, I don't know. It did not happen again. It, I don't remember an incident like that. Uh, no, not the incident, but that there were new rules in place where the duty person had access to a list of the combos. Or, somebody was held accountable, I'm, I'm sure of it. You know, being in the military long enough, that's going to happen once. Yeah. And, it, and somebody's going to get a talking to that either shortly thereafter or immediately following the next day or anything like that's going to have an investigation. Yeah. Right. Cause it's a near, it's, it's a mishap. Okay. What happened now? Who are we at the five W's and we're going to find out exactly what happened. Then we're going to come in there and go, okay, these things need to change or I'm going to make up a statistic here, but most of your accidents are human, human yeah. error. Most of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, a good majority of them are, are human error. We did something, somebody did something wrong. Somebody did something out of, out of the ordinary, out of, out of order. Uh, and that's the case, right? You would think that the combo would be you're on the repair team. You should know the combo. So, yeah, I'm sure. Remember, ship's company, mm-hmm. air wing, right? So yeah. that's a ship's company problem. That's not a, the air wing. Our problem was I don't want you, I don't want my tires melting on my plane because you can't put a fire out. So we had to move the plane. So yeah. there's none of that. None of this was going on because me and the you know the squadron guys that were on board were willing to help out because you're right. I mean, you're, even though you're in port, that's your home. I don't want my house catching on fire. So yeah, do what I can to help you know extinguish the flames and, and get people to safety. Yeah. Wow. Uh, oh, so the pilots when when they would come back from from a sortie or or from a mission would. Would they ever talk to you guys? Would they ever like like? Did you ever hear stories from the pilots? I think in my in my junior years, being a being a a junior technician, uh, I would be called on the plane in the plane because a Hawkeye is a, a plane you can actually go into while it's turning. So part of our job was to get the systems energized, get them all ready to go, kind of turn them over to the the operators and let them go operate the plane and come back. Routinely, I'd be in in and out of the plane talking to them. Yeah. Routinely, not like best friends talking to, them, but hey. This is wrong. Well, let me fix that for you. You know, we joke all the time. It takes a high school education to fix it and a college education to break it. So it kind of goes back, <laughs> goes back and forth. So, yeah, we had a rapport. Uh, and my communication as a technician was definitely different than when I was working in maintenance control and, and talking to a variety of air crew mm-hmm. instead of just the operators. I would talk to pilots and operators. Um, yeah, they've shared some stories with me. Uh, one that sticks out is, uh, are you familiar with hypoxia? Hypoxia. Yes. You mean it's just general right? general lack of oxygen. Yes. To yeah. the, to the brain. So. Uh, yes, yeah, like pulling G's. Not so much that. It's so. As an example, a uh, a Hornet Super Hornet aircraft has has an onboard 
oxygen generating system. It makes its own oxygen. Mm -hmm. Whereas other, um, other airplanes may have a liquid oxygen system or a gaseous oxygen system where they store that and they would use it when necessary. Well, the Super Hornet has, it generates oxygen. It makes it basically by separating air and, you know, what's air, 70 some percent nitrogen and so on, so oxygen. It'll separate all that, filter it and separate it. Okay. Uh, they're known, those O-box concentrators are known for failing from time to time and not producing enough oxygen. So you'll get what's called a hypoxic event, which if you've seen officer or gentleman and they're doing the whole patty cake and they can't keep their coordination. Right. And old boy's like, ace of spades. Right, yeah. That's hypoxia starting okay. to happen. So my maintenance officer at the time, uh, he had a hypoxic event in the airplane and he had to be, uh, he had to be guided in by a wingman to help to land the plane. He landed the plane. Everything was uneventful, you know, cheers around happy days. That's, that's a win. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, anything that, anything that happens, it's a mishap with, with the Navy or anything. I think almost any organization is the first thing you do is whisk you away to medical. You're going to go to the hospital or you're going to go get looked at by a doctor to make sure that you're on the up and up. So he went to medical on, on the ship and he came, he came back a few, I want to say a few hours later. And, uh, He's like, I don't, I don't remember landing on the plane. I don't remember it. I don't remember any of it. Wow. And I just remember thinking how fascinating that was that A, he's alive, you know, talking to me right here. B, that he's sharing it with me. Right. And that's kind of the rapport that I had, you know, from being a technician to being somebody that kind of that managed maintenance. I talked to a variety of in- individuals. I talked to sailors. I talk to air crew. I talk to passers-by that want to have questions. Um, you talk to a lot of people at that desk. It's kind of like a, a town hall of anything. You get a lot of questions there. The phone's always ringing. There's always activity, but people are always talking to you. So my dialect and my, you know, my communication as a technician was definitely welcome and, and useful for doing my job. But I really relished my communications once I was kind of in charge in a capacity to, to manage things because the conversations we would have, that's one of them, you know, did he share it with anybody else? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he came by and said, yeah, I don't, I don't remember landing that plane. I don't, I don't remember any of it. And I just remember thinking that is, we go back to training. He trained thousands of hours in that airplane Yeah. to the point that it was automatic that he landed the plane. It's hard enough to land a plane on a carrier as it is. Right. Without having to say later on, I don't even remember doing it. It ain't, you know, I'm sure some of us have driven home after a long day at work or whatever, and and you've had gaps of memory. You know, I've, I've done it a couple of times. I know I have. Like, I just, I spaced out there for a minute, right? I just drove all the way home and I just, I spaced out for a minute. Like, I don't remember the last quarter mile or whatever the kill, you know, whatever it might be. Well, I've never done it driving, but definitely whiskey. Whiskey tends to. Uh, <laughs> well, he wasn't drinking. Have lots of lapses of memory. <laughs> he wasn't, you know, he wasn't drinking. <laughs> no, but, of course, know, I would hope not. <laughs> so, you know, hypoxia is kind of it's a it's a real wow. threat, you know, yeah. and, and that's happened more to more than one pilot. Yeah, but that is incredible that that uh, just the that the 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 reflexive training was still kicking in despite mm-hmm. that. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, I mean, I, I have air crew that have known, you know, other air crew that have that have died. Yeah. They, they were friends or they were, you know, they were uh, college uh, classmates or they were academy classmates. You know, a lot of those guys, you know, because of 
you know, the, most of the casualties and in, in aircraft accidents are the operators, not the technicians, not the people who, who turn wrenches. Right. It's usually the operators. Something happens, you know. So I've, you know, I've talked to a number of air crew that have, that have known somebody that's, you know, had an accident while we've been out to sea, you know, and they, again, it's the, can handle most, most stressors, you know, the training and everything that, you know, the, the military just puts you under the significant amount of stress that you, you go through mm-hmm. makes it, I think, a little easier to cope when, when things happen, you know, because there's always an outlet. You've got sailor friends you can talk to. There's always a chaplain. There's always somebody you can lean on and talk to, you know. It's a fraternity, ultimately. Now, you said you know, the training prepared you, prepared you for the stressors and all that. Do, in your opinion, has it in the last has the training changed much? Have you noticed a difference? In, and it's so hard because as you get older, you, like there's a natural tendency to be like, oh, kids these days, rah, rah. you know, like everybody does that, right? I, I totally get that. I do it to to some extent. Uh, <laughs> so, but but has have you are there are there actual concrete like have there has has there been changes to the training done that maybe it's not as harsh or not as tough or like sailors aren't being prepared as much as they once were perhaps or do, do you know or no i i can I, you know uh, opinion wise my training has changed over the years right because as you ascend the level of training that i go through um for me it, it'll get it gets less and less because you know my old adage is Am I done training? Can I consider myself trained at some point? Because you keep training me. When am I going to be trained? Past tense, like I'm I'm done. Mm. So you know, as I as I advance to the ranks, and some of those things changed from training to trained. I'm done. I don't need to train anymore. I think I've got that one down pretty good. I will say that the level of training has increased over the years. I think the quality of uh, the quality of people coming out of the the product we're getting are probably more prepared militarily than I was. Um, I say that with everything is a, is a societal reflect, right? Uh, or that's not, that's, I'm just making up words here. Um, I used to, you know, I used to say, like tell sailors people, do. That's what I used to tell do. people, usually your Navy is, 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 uh, is going to reflect a, a, you know, the dynamic of America, right? So, you know, we're 10%, if you will, the military is 10% of America. But if that, that 100% is it just as diverse as the 100% of America, right? So you get a, all walks of life toward the military. Mm-hmm. From people that were raised on a farm by both good parents to people that lived in the city that had a single parent that used public transportation, never got a driver's license. You run the gambit of people that joined the military. In my latter years, a lot of the problems I had were with how young adults coped with stress coped with any kind of adversity or rejection uh because i don't think they were outfitted properly by their by whatever parental figure they had in their life so training wise militarily robust boot camp great stuff going on boot camp because i know that their last i got a tour of the facility um they go through uss cole exercise basically USS Cole was bombed in Yemen. Yeah. Uh, they go through a scenario where they have to save the ship. I didn't do that in boot camp. You know what I mean? So yeah. so the training for sailors uh, to equip them to be fleet ready to go out and do things, I think is good. But I do remember a deployment 
a number of years ago, we sent more than a handful of sailors home for stress. We sent them all the way back home. Like they couldn't stay where they were. They had to go home because they're like, I can't do this anymore. I can't handle this. Now, is that wrong? No, we took a sailor, said, I can't do something. And we said, okay, we're going to take care of you. But for, for my take, it seemed like there was an excessive number of sailors we were taking care of. Like, okay, I can see three or four in a, you know, in an organization that's 250 people. Uh, most of those, you know, half of that being air crew and half of that being, you know, support staff. But that number seemed excessive and it got up to 15. So percentage wise, it didn't seem, didn't seem right to me. And so, so it's less a, a question of the training. It's more just general societal preparedness and yes. attitude. Yes. That's, okay. that's my opinion. Do you think, now here's another question. Because when you started in the Navy, there were no cell phones on ships. There was no internet. There was no email. Nope. Do you think that constant, because uh, I'm assuming on, on most, <laughs> it, you know, I'm assuming nowadays you probably have 24 hour internet on a carrier. No, no, but you have, you have, uh, you have internet. I'm not going to say it's 24 hours okay. a day. You have, you know, for somebody that was in my position, senior leadership, you have more internet access than say the junior folks, you know, they, they may have a few hours during their day yeah. to check email and do whatever. Um, that, that could be an issue too. It could I be mean, an issue because people, you know, people get latched onto their electronic mail. You know, if it's kind of like, you know, if you text somebody and they don't respond, you're left to wonder why they're not responding. Did I do something wrong? Did I did I offend them? Did are they are they okay? No, they just haven't responded to you. you just <laughs> right. give it a few more minutes. So, my very first deployment, I wrote letters. I wrote letters home, and you put a number on the letter. So that's number one. Number two, you know, so you know what letter you're getting. You kind of had an idea what letter. Interesting. So, hey, I'm reading letter three. I haven't got letter two yet. You know, or or what have you. Hmm. The follow-on deployments. You could type an email, but you had to put it on a disc, and you had that. You had to give that disc to somebody, and they were they were allowed to read it. So you weren't sharing national secrets, which yeah. a lot of people had heartburn with that. Like, I'm not. I'm in the military. I'm not telling him anything. I just don't want you reading my personal email. So you had to give the disc to somebody, and they would read your times. email. And then when the email came in, somebody had to read it, yep. and then give you your disc, and you could read your email. But like anything else, after a while, it's like, well, I'm not getting an email. Something's wrong. Like, no, it's not. There's nothing wrong. Nobody's just, you just haven't got an email yet. So, yeah. but, but even you describing this, I like, I, I could see that building yeah, anxiety. It, it builds a lot of people have a, a lot of people. Or I'm going to say some people have a problem with, yeah. you know, what is it? The, uh, I read a book and, you know, the gener maybe a generation ago, they, they, they dubbed them the IDI, the I deserve a generation. Mm. The ones that don't believe they have to work or anything like, hey, I've been to school. I should have a car now and a place to live. Like it was the IDI generation. Yeah, I deserve it. So when, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but I know some people in my family unit, my, you know, my group, and that, and that extends out quite a bit. Uh, the younger ones uh, have a problem with adversity. Anything that comes along, and if it if it involves a little bit of work, a little more diligence on your part, they're more apt to throw their hands in the air and go, "I can't do it." Mm. Instead of, "Wait a second, think about this rationally. What, what do you need to do to get from A to B?" Throwing your hands in the air and saying you can't do it is probably not your first option. That probably should be your last option. Mm. But for some of them, it's their first option. Right? I can't do it. Well, did you try? Well, hey, I did. How long did you try? 
you know, as a, yeah. as a, and that's where the generational thing comes in. Some of some of us older folks, we have a hard we have a hard time with that. Like, I don't understand why you can't just do it. Conversely, they are not equipped to do it. Mm. And after a while, I didn't blame the sailors anymore. I can't blame anybody, but I can say I can look at root cause, and that's just how that's how I'm wired now. I'm a root cause kind of guy. Why is it this way? And what can I do to make it not this way anymore? So I analyzed it. Okay, 15 people seems a bit excessive. Let me throw five of those off the top because they just saw it was going on. They figured they'd just hop on that bandwagon and they took advantage of it. Yeah. There's about five that did that. The other 10, I'm just making up numbers now. It's a, just, it's a round figure. I don't know what exactly what the number was. Legitimately had problems of a coping type could not cope with the situation and were not equipped to cope with the situation. And that was not the Navy's responsibility. The Navy taught them how to comb their hair, put their uniform on, fight fires, do CPR, fix airplanes, or, you know, type memos or fly or be an operator. The Navy did not, is not responsible to teach them morals and ethics and how to, how to deal with adversity. Unfortunately, in my opinion, and that's the parent's job to do that, to arm them significantly as a young adult to deal with those things. So what is that left for me to do? Now I've got this person in front of me that now I have to do that. I have to train them or I have to now expend, and not I, I'm talking about the Navy now. Yeah. I as the Navy have to invest. I've already invested a dollar amount to them for training. Now I'm going to invest medical, spiritual, whatever you name it, into getting them where they need to be. And there's a good possibility I'm going to have to write them off. Wow. So there goes the million dollar, whatever, whatever the figure is to train somebody to be a sailor yeah. out the window because they can't cope. So now you and I and the American taxpayer are now left to pay that bill when their, the, the root cause has to do with something in their, how they were raised. And that's, again, that's my opinion. I mean, I, yeah. I'm, I'm just throwing that out there because I saw it firsthand. So the training-wise, I think they're smarter. Yeah, they are smarter. Mm-hmm. They are more equipped to handle um, their trade. Like the training is really good. Like welders know how to weld, right? Mm-hmm. People that fix airplanes, these airplanes are not your slant six, you know, go out there and put a spark plug in and fire it up and let it go. It's like opening the hood of that 2018 Ram of there going, eh, uh, I need a... I need an OBD2 reader and I need to hook up the, the laptop to it, you know, to troubleshoot it because it's a newer vehicle. Avionics and airplanes are no different. They are mm-hmm. advanced. Uh, some of the systems they have on there are state of the art. So you can't just have somebody that took, you know, a couple of classes. They're trained. They're highly skilled individuals and they're, yeah. and they're very good at what they do. I had the unique pleasure this last tour working with some of the smartest people around. You know, the, the squadron with Maine's department, had, I think, had a very good reputation for having good, pristine, well-functioning airplanes to the point that people would borrow our planes, ask to borrow planes. And when they did borrow planes, they would come in and say, oh, my, you guys have great aircraft. We like we like your aircraft. Thank you so much. Because we have people that are well-trained, you know. And again, but a small portion of those people, unfortunately, have problems that the Navy cannot fix. Well, uh, it's fascinating hearing this story. I, I haven't interviewed anybody that was on a carrier yet, so this is uh, this has been great. Oh, yeah. um, so now you're retired. 
Yeah. Uh, do you have a, any plans? Do you, do you do you have plans of helping the youth right now? And and I, like I don't know. Like, mm. have you thought about that? Like, I have not thought about volunteering. I did apply for a job um, mm-hmm. teaching on base, but I just found out today that I or yesterday that I was not selected for that teaching job. I do like teaching. I have a. This is for. Young students? They would be teaching avionics. Oh, avionics. Okay. Basically airplane stuff. Okay. Um, But one of my most rewarding tours was actually teaching, getting up on the stump and preparing my lesson plan. And I felt like I was uniquely uh, positioned to train the fleet because they would be going out to the fleet and then doing, plying their skills. And I didn't want to give the fleet a bad product. So. I did my best to train and, and I took I took what I learned in my during my instructor tour and I took that with me. So when I left um, and I became, you know, a little more senior, I started training as much as I could on a variety of subjects, whether it was, you know, you know, database management or, you know, uh, how to screen logbooks. And things like that. Wow. Train. Why not train, right? Because yeah. the more people that are surrounded by me that are trained means less work I have to do. Otherwise, I'm going to be the one doing all the work because I'm the one that's trained. So, you know, it, it's twofold. I want to train because I want people around me to be better. And the fact that I've had more people around me that are better, it makes my job easier. But I have not had the opportunity to do any of that because I took terminal leave in December and, uh, my wife came out to Italy and we kind of toured Europe a little bit before we oh, came home. Neat. And since I've been home, I've been in house renovation mode ever since then. I mean, I'm, I've actually got shiplap panels that I'm putting tongue oil on right now because those are going to go over my popcorn ceiling in my, oh. in my house. So I'm in full, full reno mode. So I would like to work again. I'm not, but I'm not in a hurry. I don't have to be in a hurry. Wow. I mean, my retirement and, you know, kind of takes care of, the bills right now, but I would like to eventually, I would have liked to have that, that job teaching because I, I do. Yeah. I have a lot more to give than, than I, you know, I thought and I would like to do that. So we'll see how that works out. You know, who knows what opportunities will open up. You never know. Awesome. Well, uh, Robert, I think we're going to wrap up, but it's been great talking to you. It's been like, oh, it's been a pleasure. Long interview. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's. I love hearing the stories, and, and who knows, maybe we'll have you back for some some even more gossipy stories. It's great to get someone who's retired from <laughs> from something like. Yeah, you can say anything you want now. Oh, I've definitely interviewed people where you could tell they're like holding back. You know, they're like like one one gal was uh, she was a, a tugboat operator, and she said, "Oh, it's all I could do not to swear through the whole interview." I've been, <laughs> I've been watching my P's and Q's. I appreciate it. It's fine. Well, this will be a nice non explicit uh, interview, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, so is there anything you want to say to, to folks interested in joining the Navy? Any any words of advice? Anything that you would have done differently? Well, I mean, it's kind of hard coming from somebody who's did 32 years and some change uh, to give advice. But I, I can give career advice. Uh, I think that in any, any organization that's kind of like the Navy, and you know, most of your larger corporations that have a good infrastructure and have off everything kind of set up, I always still try to tell people, hey, you know what? If the Navy is not for you, and this could be for anything, right? If the Navy is not for you, then you need to move on to something else, right? There's no point in trying to be at a job that you're not happy at. You don't get any satisfaction out of. Mm-hmm. And of course, less the money's great. I mean, because sometimes good money is, is worth looking the other way. But ultimately, you want a job that gives you some satisfaction. Number two, 
always help the team. I mean, most of the time in the Navy, especially, you know, in the ranks E1 through E6, you, you get a performance evaluation. You're being ranked against your peers, right? You're the people you work with. That in, that inherently makes it a competitive work environment. I'm competing with the person next to me or the person across from me. I'm competing. So once I do that, I create an air of competition and where one feels like they have to be better than the other, right? And sometimes it comes at a cost. But ultimately, if you're doing everything you need to be doing for the team, like if you're you're building the team up and you're training the team and you're and you're assisting the team's goals and you're doing things that make the team better, ultimately you are helping yourself. You ultimately you're making yourself a valuable member of the team at the same time making the team better. So I used to tell people like, I get it. We have an eval system that makes you competitive with your peer. But what you're, what you're missing the point on is it's the person that does all those ancillary things. They do their job. They volunteer or they're taking a college course here and there or they're doing something to better themselves or doing something to better the organization. They're the one that automatically usually rises to the top. So always do something for the team, always, and you'll, you'll, come, out, you'll come out on top. So that's kind of my advice. Awesome. But ultimately, what I've learned over the last few years. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you, Robert. Thank you very much for thank doing you. this. Thank you. I really appreciate nice it. Being here. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> come back anytime you need me. All right. Well, great. Well, folks, thank you so much for, for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Spread the word. Uh, support it if you can. Buy my little kid's book if, if you're looking for a present for somebody. I got a wonderful little kid's book called The Greatest Captain in the World. And support folks that have served. Support all the, the military branches. They, they need our support uh, probably more than, than we realize. So if, if you're able to, please do that. All right. Well, wishing everybody out. Oh, oh, oh. And, and do keep in mind, even though we're talking about massive ships, I mean, there are very few ships uh, bigger than a U.S. aircraft carrier. They're certainly the biggest capital ships, I believe, in, in history. Despite that, you know, all these lessons do translate to smaller boats. Like when we're talking about the training, that translates to the smaller sailing vessels. It translates to, to your work life. And 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 I, I hate to say it, even to life on land. So so do understand like these lessons do translate and yeah, just try take them to heart. Practice, 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 train, train, train. And um, yeah, you never know when you might need it. Anyway, enough lecturing. With that, folks, wishing you everyone out there uh, many thanks again. Robert, thanks for doing the interview. Wishing everyone out there fair winds and a following sea.